Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm Nina Pantic. Hey guys, I'm Irina Falcone. Our special guest today is none other than Jim Courier. He's a commentator, broadcaster, businessman, and former number one. He won four Grand Slams during his career, retired in the year 2000, started his company called Inside Out Sports Entertainment in 2004. We talk about how Inside Out is now par- partnered with Oracle Pro Series, and we talk about his commentating work, his most memorable on-court moments with players like Kvitova and Nadal, and then we also get into the pay discrepancy between higher-ranked and lower-ranked players on tour. Let's get into that interview with Jim Courier. Hey, Jim Courier, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. We're super excited to talk to you about all things tennis. Um, We want to talk about you a little bit, as well as, of course, the Oracle Pro Series coming up. So let's start with post-US Open, the life of Jim Courier. How have things been going for you, and what are you up to? Well, uh, I've slipped back into parenting mode after about two and a half weeks of nonstop work and enjoyment of the U.S. Open. Uh, I, I got out of the U.S. Open uh, with very little sleep and a lot of excitement. I, I love the U.S. Open this year. I thought it was a phenomenal couple of weeks, starting with Fan Week, which which I got to be a part of and playing an exhibition and just being out with with a lot of people getting hyped for the Open early on and obviously coming up to a couple of of historic finals with some really interesting finishes. It was a great run at the U S open. And then after that, I've been catching my breath from a travel standpoint. I did play one Invesco series event up in Toronto this week. And other than that, I've just been spending time working on the Oracle pro series with the team at inside out, trying to get, uh, get it going because we're, we're starting our next, uh, our next little project here with this is getting going in the next week or so. So there's a lot, a lot of logistical, uh, items that need to be checked off for, for 2019 and 2020. So it's been still busy. Um, and I have two young children with my wife, Susanna. So we're busy in, in that parenting aspect too. So it's been great to be home, but it hasn't slowed down a ton. There's just been a little bit more sleep, but not quite as many early mornings to get up to go out to the, uh, tennis channel live show. How's that for a snapshot? <laughs> That's a lot. Um, I actually, I just, I just had a quick question. I know you were up at the Open for a while. Um, you talked about having some surprising moments at the U.S. Open. What would you say was the most surprising? Your favorite moment? Your, you know, shocking moment of the tournament? Well, um, there, there's a lot to choose from. There's a lot to unpack there. Starting from the end, I think the fact that Daniel Medvedev was able to physically, mentally, and game-wise stay in there with Rafael Nadal from two sets to love down. Maybe the, the biggest surprise of the U.S. Open. Uh, didn't know that he had that in him. We hadn't seen him um, stack up at a best-of-five set match against a player of that caliber. He he sort of faltered in Australia this year in the fourth round against Djokovic in, in a similar kind of contest, but he was up to it, and it was a pretty awesome thing to witness one of the young guys really test an icon like that and then just go in one, one uh, singles match further back 
uh, watching Serena again struggle a little bit with the moment, which is understandable. She's obviously playing for things that are that are really hard to comprehend for for most of us, um, and she's feeling the stress of those moments. Clearly, if you just look at the cold, calculated numbers, her service numbers were low um, in the final compared to how she served in route to the final. And maybe Andrescu had something to do with that, but Andrescu's. Uh, ability to, to play in that moment. We've seen her do it this year. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I keep waiting for her to show some glimpses of, of, uh, nerves and, and fear and, and normal things that players would feel in high stress moments. And she just keeps coming through and playing really intriguing, interesting tennis. And, and it's, uh, she's a breath of fresh air. And, and it's wonderful to see her battle against an all time great like Serena to get her first title too. So. There's a lot in the finals. Um, God, going back from from that, I mean, she's the the method of moments out on Armstrong were just amazing. You answer questions as I would expect Jim, Jim Kerr, the commentator, to answer thorough and precise and so well. I do want to know when you transitioned to the commentating broadcasting career, were you a natural right away, or is this something that you've worked on? I don't think I was a natural right away, but I think. I think that coming out of playing everyone that you're talking about, you have a pretty big uh, edge as far as access to information and just level of info that you carry. Uh, This is what players do in pressure moments. These are their tells. So that was the easy part. Being able to work in my very first broadcast with true pros like Mary Carrillo and Barry McKay and Marv Albert, and Ernie Johnson, those were the people that I got to sit side by side as I was learning how to do it. And they really nurtured me. And I, I can never thank them enough for that because I was scared. I didn't know what to do. And I, Wimbledon was my very first job in television, which it shouldn't have been. No one should start at Wimbledon. You should have to start at some small tournaments and learn a little bit. But that was the break I got. And I took it and uh, I've just been doing it ever since and, and listening and trying to get better. And I'm pretty sure that I was pretty bad at first, if, if I'm honest. And I think that I've gotten better by hopefully giving a little bit more space. That's the one thing that, that I constantly remind myself in broadcast is to give space for the viewers to actually enjoy it without having to listen to us interpret every single thing. And that's the hardest thing to do because you're also paid to talk. So it's, right. it's difficult. We're not, it's not a podcast. It's not a radio show. They can see what's happening. Our job is to tell why it's happening and it's easy to get overexcited in those moments and, and over talk. So kind of like I'm doing in this podcast. <laughs> first hand glimpse of, of the, this is the internal struggle right here. No, you're all we good. See, the podcast is perfect for this. We want to see the uh, internal dialogue and we're getting it. What, how do the nerves compare? You know, you've played in Grand Slam finals, uh, former number one. So like, how do you compare the nerves of coming on court for like a post-match interview in a packed stadium versus when you played it. Can you compare the two? They're actually quite similar to, to the feeling that I, I got as a player walking onto a court for a match where I was a ball of nerves as I would walk onto the court, even though I think most players, Arena, I'm sure you, you felt this way. You, most players, you, you try and hide those nerves and pretend like you're, you're a cool poker player. And then you get the warm-up. And that's sort of where the nerves can be alleviated as a player before first ball. And that's what the first question really is in those environments for me. I only do it at the Australian Open. It's the only time that I do post-match interviews. And yeah, I'm nervous. And I'm thinking about questions all throughout the match and prior to the match. And I'm trying to figure out how to 
shape an interview so it's comfortable for the player and it's enlightening for the audience. And that's not always easy to marry those two. So I'm, it's a, it's a lot to, you know, to be conducting an interview is very hard. And, and I sympathize and empathize with, with you two trying to navigate my wandering mind today. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm dealing with that on court with players too, cause they're in moments of high adrenaline and they're exulting in their moment. And it's not always easy to get them to sort of follow the narrative arc that you want them to. But it's fun. I like, I do like the challenge, but it does, it, it riddles me with anxiety for a couple of weeks in Australia. <laughs> Something you did mention was having a poker face, you know, right before you go on court. And I think all players can relate to that. I mean, even Bianca before her match against Serena, you know, she was out there and it was biggest match of her life, but she was just, hey, it's just another match. Um, and I just had to comment. I mean, you you speak about being nervous about going uh, post-match in Australia. What do you think you're most nervous about? Is it like a tough question? Is it like honestly tripping and falling like what is it you think that makes you the most nervous well it's a live wire you're walking you're walking out there without a net and if you ask a question the wrong way you can trigger a pretty awful awkward situation in an era where all that stuff lives on um you know if you make a mistake it's going to be rebroadcast and rebroadcast in various mediums and it and it can be you know stressful for sure um, so the most important thing that I'm trying to do out there is to make the player comfortable and to try and allow them a chance to show their personality to the fans. It's an opportunity to get inside the players in a different way. Um, so I'm trying to provide a service for them without saying anything stupid and saying something that'll make them feel bad. I'll give you a, a real clear example. Um, I was given the opportunity this year with channel nine in Australia to call women's matches in various um, situations where I was either the play-by-play or the analyst, but in each of those occasions, I went out and did post-match interviews. And I don't know the women's tour players quite as well as I know the, the men's tour players. And I, in particular, had to go out uh, and interview Petra Kvitova after a really important match. And it was really central. She was back in the final of a major for the first time since she had, you know, the invasion with the intruder where she was attacked in her home. And I needed to bring that into the fold for the people at home to understand what a seminal moment this was for her in a sensitive way. And I was horrified when she broke down in tears, when I asked the question and what I, it was the most respectful way that I could ask it, referencing it without directly touching on it. And it was one of those moments where I just, I held the microphone and she was crying and I thought, I think I've just ended my career. And because you're not supposed to make someone cry in a moment of joy. Um, but, but she was really kind and courteous afterwards, and I felt awful. And then, you know, talked to people like Renee Stubbs, who go out and do that same thing too. Like, how how did it look? How did it feel from your lens? Did I did I cross a boundary? And they said, no, you, it was okay. It was just one of those moments where she's been asked those questions many, many, many times. It's what Chris McKendry told me the next day. Chris is like, I've asked her that question seven times. She's never cried for me. Why does she cry for you? I'm like, I don't want her to cry for me, Chris. So those those are the types of moments that uh, I think people in that position want to avoid. I certainly do, but you don't always get there, and and it can be filled with uh, with real stress. You never know what's going to happen, right? So you're coming on court after they've just been, you know, having all these emotions and all these feelings and adrenaline. So you never know what's going to happen. I think my most the moment that stood out to me when I'm thinking about like Jim Kerr on court interview is when you uh, talk to Rafa in Australia and the girlfriend 
you asked about his girlfriend. You kind of like didn't even really say anything uh, other than, you know, more of a comment. You began the question with his girlfriend and he called her a, a wild card. And to me, that was like one of the funniest things because it showed his personality. I don't know how you crafted it or how you hoped the question would go and the answer, but it became this thing and it was hilarious. And usually Rafa is very by the book and very serious and he kind of let us in. So that's my, uh, my favorite, my favorite moment, I think. Yeah, thanks. I, I love that moment too because it was unexpected. Because it was, it also it wasn't something I was trying to generate for him. It was more just a comment of, I never asked him about his girlfriend because she was never in Australia, and she finally came down. And I felt it was one of those matches where he won very easily and very quickly. And those are the moments when you you have a little bit more license to go deeper instead of trying to get the next match on. So I I went there and said, you know, she she's here. What have you guys been doing? It was a super generic throw to him just to get her to talk about, to get him to talk about her. And then he went with the crafty comment, which was really funny. And people don't get to see the humor that Rafa certainly has. And, and it's tricky, I think, to be funny in a different language that, than your na- your native tongue, too. So there was a there was a lot there, which was really a lot in a small moment. And yeah, I love I love those little moments where they give you something unexpected. And you've definitely played uh, much many many good matches at all of these Grand Slams. How often do you think about your playing career? I know you retired in two thousand, so it's been somewhat of a minute. But you know, do you reflect fondly? I mean, you've accomplished you accomplished so much, and people maybe know you more as a commentator now, which is crazy. But how often do you reflect on your accomplishments as a player? I think I reflect on them when people ask me about them, to be honest, mostly. It, it, I, it's funny, I had a moment at the U.S. Open this year where I was just sitting watching. I wasn't even working yet. I was kind of waiting for a match that I was going to commentate on. And I was just watching the court, and I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I, I've actually played a bunch of matches on that court. And it was just it was almost like an out-of-body experience because it feels like a different lifetime because I have this different lens now from the broadcast side for almost 20 years. I've been, you know, which is longer than my career where I played the majors. So it's really interesting to think about it from where I almost put myself back in different skin and go, Oh yeah, I used to walk onto the court and play. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm more of a forward thinker, but I get asked quite a bit about it from different people in different places in, in you know, my day-to-day life. And, and that's when I'll bounce back into that mode. But it's it's not something that I'm sitting around the house thinking about much. It's put that way. <laughs> you have kids, so I'm sure that they take priority of most of your thoughts. Um, so you talked about, you know, being a broadcaster for close to 20 years. How long did you, you said you played, your broadcasting career was longer than you actually playing. When did you know it was time to put the rackets down? I mean, technically you haven't really put the rackets down since you're still playing in the senior tour. So when was it time to put the rackets down back in 20, 19 years ago? Yeah, well, in 2000, I was playing in the semifinals of San Jose against Mark Philippoussis on a Saturday night, good crowd. I lost a tight three-setter and I walked off the court and I just wanted to get home. And that's when I knew that, that it was time for me. I, I was, uh, I'd been battling, uh, you know, battling around the tour for 13 years at that point. And it t- took a lot of energy for me with my game style, uh, more along the lines of people not familiar with my game style, more along the lines of an Nadal from an effort standpoint. Uh, you could see it, you could hear it, you could sort of feel it. It wasn't something that came easy for me, but I, I love doing it. But I, I think at that point, 
I walked out of that match and I, and I knew that I, it was time for someone else to have that space that was fresher, that was, that was more uh, passionate about it. I hadn't lost my love for hitting tennis balls. Uh, I hadn't lost my love necessarily even for competing. I just lost my love for the grind. And if you can't love the grind, you can't do it at that level. And so for me, it was a very easy decision. Uh, I waited to, I waited because I didn't want it to be a, a knee jerk decision and to regret it if I made an immediate announcement. So I waited uh, a couple of months just to make sure that every morning when I woke up, yep, that was the right decision. And then it was finally time to say, okay, that's it. I've had enough. It's been a great run. I've been really lucky to do what I've loved and I'm going to find something else. And, and soon thereafter, the phone rang and I was on my way to Wimbledon to do broadcasting, which was sort of weird. And then inside out happened. I, we started the senior tour in America and it's just sort of snowballed that I've been involved in tennis in different ways since then, but I've always continue to hit tennis balls and compete and, and love it, but just not at that ATP tour level, which requires 100% of your focus every day. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey listeners, this is the tennis.com podcast with special guest Jim Courier. He's talking about his life after tennis and how he got into the business world. Everything from commentating to his company Inside Out to the Oracle Pro Series Tour. Let's get back to Jim. So Inside Out Sports Entertainment, you started that in 2004, I believe. So not very long after you retired at all. What's the company and what was the goal of it? And how did you, I guess, start that part of your career? Because it feels like you have like five careers going at the same time right now. So that particular one, what's the story of the origin? Well, it really it really came from the charity world. I, I was doing a charity event, an annual charity event to raise money uh, with a tennis exhibition and had some, a musical component to it. And from there, I, I became interested in the business side of tennis and uh, my business partner uh, still at Inside Out, John Venison, uh, and I, we talked about there being an opportunity for a senior tour in the United States. There was one internationally, but there were no events in the U.S. My generation of players had either just retired or, in Andre's case, was, was on the verge of retiring. And we saw an opportunity to provide you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of events with familiar names in, in the U.S. marketplace um, knowing that historically most male uh, retired players continue to compete. And one of our disappointments with our business so far is that we haven't been able to convince enough of the, the retired female legends to go out and compete. We've gotten them to play in many one-off exhibitions and one-at exhibitions and things of that nature, but we've not been able to, to create a, a, a similar women's competitive tour because they just haven't wanted to compete at, at the same uh, the same levels is the weird word, but the same intensity that the men uh, are willing to do. So um, I still think there's an opportunity for that down the road. Uh, and I hope that we'll be the ones to be able to do it, but we haven't gotten there yet, but we did see the opportunity on the men's side. We created the tour. It's been ongoing. It's changed a few sponsors over the years. And Besco has been our partner now um, since they bought power shares for, for quite some time. 
and it's been a success. We've we've had uh, had a good run thus far, and we continue to to keep going. Just came from Toronto this week. We've got uh, a couple more the rest of this year. One in Los Angeles, one in Houston, and then we'll be back at it again in 2020. So um, it, the business side has been something I've been really I've been educated in. I didn't go to college, so for me, it's been a real learning curve and, and a real wonderful one to to understand how the world of tennis actually operates it's made me a better person in general, um, having to answer to people and not just be the talent, so to speak, which is, which is a one-sided affair. So I think it's made me better in all of my, and it's made me a better husband. It's made me a better parent. I've, I've learned to think about what other people need to get what they're after. And that's not something that tennis player, at least my experience with a tennis player, I was very single-minded and very selfish. And this is, forced me to, to step outside of that lens. So it's been rewarding in a lot of ways. Wow, I can't even like choose a question to ask you right now. Um, that was a lot of information. <laughs> but um, Sorry, I guess I'm, like, I'm unfiltered. No, we love it. Trust me. Like this is what people want to hear. Honestly, this is what people want to hear. So um, I guess the first thing is just congratulations on pretty much just coming up with a company and sticking with it. And, you know, you've done so well for yourself and you've done so much for the game. Do you find uh, you made a comment about how you're having a hard time getting female legends to come out and play? Is it because they're, you know, wanting kids, having babies, having to take care of all that? Or what do you find is the biggest reason as to why you're not getting enough females? So I, I want to be real clear that, that we have had a lot of success in having the legends on the female side come out and play in one-off events. So we've, we've had multiple events where we'll do mixed gender or we'll, it can just be one-off special events where they will play. But trying to organize uh, multi-day tournaments, which is where we started with, with our, it was the Outback Champion Series where we would play three to five days in, in cities that we didn't have any success getting players to do it. Players like Monica Sellis, you know, my friend from Boletaris, who I'm still friends with, she just didn't want to do it. Um, Steffi Graf, as we all know, an incredible icon of the game who lives in the United States, but she is an active mom, and that's what she wants to do with her life. And everyone has that choice, and all we can do is inquire and see if it's possible. And if it is, then we'll go out and solicit sponsorship, which is what it requires for these things to function. But if you don't have the players, you can't actually go out and even talk to the sponsors because how can you tell a sponsor, Hey, we're going to deliver this and you can't get the players to actually show up. So it, it, it really is player driven and the men's side as well. So that, I don't know why. Uh, all I know is respect, respectfully, we inquire, we make, we make the, uh, the questions, to, to the agents or to the players themselves and see what their appetite is. Historically, it hasn't been enough for us to uh, go out and try and get something done um, from that standpoint, but we've still, um, we've still been able to, to enjoy having them as part of some inside out events from time to time when it makes sense for their schedule. Does that make sense? It does. It makes sense. It also makes me think like maybe you're excited for when Roger and Rafa and Novak stop playing and can join your tournament. That would be incredibly exciting. Um, history shows that the great players continue to want to play from, from Rod Laver on down. All the great ones who have been healthy have continued to play in various exhibitions or tours over the years. And, and I suspect that uh, even though and, and there have been many iterations of players that have not had a financial need to do so, the original ones did. So, of course, 
these players that, that you're mentioning and Serena and Venus and other legends like that, they won't have a financial need to do it. But if they want to compete, we'd love to help them find a way to do that. Um, they'll have lots of options. There'll be lots of suitors, I'm sure. But, um, you know, we're here. We're, our door is open and we certainly will, uh, we'll be having chats with them if and when the time is, time is right for them to, to go out and try and keep playing after their ATP and WTAs or days are done. It's exciting for the fans to maybe know that not all is lost when Roger and all of them do actually stop. There, there's hope. What about now recently, um, anyone in tennis will be in tune to this, that the Oracle Pro Series is launching a bunch of tournaments. I think they added 25 tournaments to the schedule, mostly these smaller 25Ks. Um, we know they run bigger 125K series as well and ATP Challengers. Inside Out has partnered with the Oracle Pro Series. So what does that mean and how did that come together and and how will you be involved in uh, the Oracle, the new powerhouse in tennis? Well, Oracle, with Mark Hurd's leadership, the CEO of Oracle, they they have been investing in American tennis now for several years. Uh, obviously, uh, Larry Ellison, the chairman and founder of Oracle, is, is a big tennis person. He owns Indian Wells, personally loves the sport. Mark Hurd, also an ex-tennis player. He played college tennis at Baylor, was a very good collegiate player, and has obviously been incredibly successful in business. He wants to give back to tennis, and they're they're invested in a big way in college tennis. There is a college tennis event that just finished in Malibu with a lot of uh, the top collegiate players converging out there at the racket club and playing all week long. They're invested, as you mentioned, at the high-level challenger series for both men and women. And they wanted to try and find a way to bridge that gap for the player. Those are both pathway style events, right? College is a pathway to the pros. And the last step to the, the high level tour is the, the high level challengers. So there, there's a, there are events in the middle and that's where they're investing now. So Oracle had the vision with Mark Hurd leading the way to try and essentially level the playing field for American based players. Uh, compared to Europe um, from a minor league standpoint. So in Europe, if you're a male or female player, there's so many opportunities week in and week out to stay near home, not have to spend as much money to travel to be able to play to pursue your dream and to see if you're good enough to get into the top 100, which is the end game, right? If you're top 100, you're on tour. You're playing the four majors. You're making a nice living. That's what everyone wants to do within this realm of, of the pathway, and Oracle is aiming to provide that level playing field for American-based players. And with that, um, we started talking to them at uh, Indian Wells this year, having done, a, you know, that Newport Beach, uh, they, they had the, the big men's and women's challengers the second week of the Australian Open, Taylor Fritz. The 125. The and, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bianca Andreescu won the women's, right? So yes. we, did a, we did an Invesco series event alongside that on Saturday night. So we started talking to them at that point, and then the talks went further. That They were talking to a few different groups to try and see who could help them with this vision. And they decided that we could help them with the vision, and we've been helping them ever since. So we're, we're just uh, helping trying to drive what Oracle is driving into tennis by finding locations and finding tournament directors and sites and working closely with the USTA to build out a schedule that makes sense. And that's what we're doing. And we're starting October 6th out in Los Angeles at the Claremont Club with our first mixed gender event, uh, two 25K events, a men's and a women's. And that's one of the great things about this as well is it's, a, it's an equal gender opportunity. They're going to commit the same amount of prize money 
uh, to the men and to the women throughout the course of, of this deal. So it, it's a great opportunity for American based players. Uh, it's not obviously, it, yes, it's, it's focused on helping American tennis players, but if you're a college player or someone who just wants to be in the United States, you don't have to be an American to get into these tournaments. Of course, they're ITF and, and ATP events. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, we're here with Jim Courier, former world number one, one of the best commentators out there. And we are talking all things tennis, all things inside out, his company that he created once he was done with his career, and a little bit about prize money. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, players are trying to make a living. More and more players are looking to you know, obviously make more money. And the lower ranked players are obviously the ones that have been kind of pushing a little bit to get to earn more. On Tennis Channel, during the U.S. Open, you talked about trying to make a push for more prize money for players in the earlier rounds, qualifying and doubles at Grand Slams without taking money away from, you know, the people that win it. Obviously, we know that Novak and Roger are very, very rich, but someone ranked 150 is not. So what is kind of driving you for this campaign because I think you I think your theory is that the top 250 should be making good money 250 to 400 should break even I don't know Irina what her take is on this I'm kind of curious if it's similar so so what's pushing should we start this? with Irina yeah Irina what do yeah. you think so what's considered it, it's all about what's considered good money though what like what's that number right so what what I think it, if you were here here's my philosophy just to give give you sort of the overall um, if you're in the top 250, you should be making a living where you're putting money away. Like you're not just breaking even. If you're 250 in the world, you should. At, if you're managing your expenses properly, you should be able to, to put away, say, something like $50,000 after taxes, after expenses, all of that. So you're not getting rich doing it, but you're also not in debt doing it. And then the goal for the 250 to 400 uh, would be to break even on that. So you can invest enough in yourself to stay out there from an expense standpoint. And obviously players that, that have the help of federations or sponsors would have more access to capital, but just a player who's out grinding away, uh, trying to see if they're good enough to make it to the tour level would not be losing money. And my thesis, and I've, I've been really pleased to hear that this is also the thesis of the ATP and the WTA executives who are also making the same put. I've just basically uncovered what's already been going and uncovered just for my, myself. It's not like it's a big discovery, but it's been pleasant to see that, that they've been trying to help these players that are a little further down the food chain that are not quite as high profile in the same way that let's say that you're, um, you're playing college basketball for USC and you're a female and you want to make it to the WNBA or you're a male in the same place trying to make it to the NBA. If you're a college basketball player, that's your minor league. You don't lose money doing that. You, you break even. And tennis doesn't offer that once you get out of college because you still have to transition. You don't get drafted to the top 100. You have to earn your way up there. So that's sort of that's my thesis is how do we help players um, break even? And, but also, we don't want them, if you're 250 to 400 for too long, you should probably go do something else at some point. So we don't want them necessarily 
uh, you know, I don't even actually worry too much about that, but you don't want them hanging around for too long and taking up spots for younger players that might get blocked down there, but should be getting through quicker. If you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes it's sense. Complicated, but the the whole reason I started looking at this was simply the the winners checks and the runner up checks are so eye popping these days compared to what they were ten years ago. And this is long after I retired. It's just even the last ten years they've jumped so dramatically at the slams, which is awesome. It's wonderful. I wanted to know are are the are they sharing the money at the bottom of the food chain in a better way? And the answer is yeah. Actually, the growth rates in the first and the second and the third rounds are higher over the ten year period than what the winners checks have grown. So they're doing a really nice job of that. I think they're going to continue to do that to try and support the players uh, that are not the high profile players who have all the off court earnings opportunities because that's the big difference. The top players can make so much money on and off the court. Um, prize money can be just a small part of their earnings. But when you get to 75 in the world, unless you're a young player from a, a, a high-profile country with sponsors, prize money is sort of everything you make. And it's really important that they're able to put some good money away if they're in the league because you're in the league. I, I totally agree with you on that, uh, Jim. I remember, I think it was Christy on, she said, you may have heard this tweet that she was talking about. The last time she played main draw at US Open, I think was 2008 or 2009. And 10 years, um, and it was like $18,500 first round loss in main draw. And this year it was like $58,000 first round loss. I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge difference. So I mean, I, I people talk about it all the time. You know, why aren't players getting more money? I think it was the number was like 13% of what players make at the U.S. Open compared to what they profit from. It's like some ridiculous number like that. And then you hear about, you know, the NBA over 1%. They just they locked they had the lockout. They just would not play over 1%. And it, it was like 49.51. So I know that there's a lot of discussion about it. But what would you say is the number one thing that's blocking from us getting more money from, you know, getting that better disbursement? So these are there are two two different discussions actually, Arena. There, there's one, the one discussion that I was leading at the U.S. Open on Tennis Channel Live was about the distribution of the money that is currently offered within the rounds. So how much would the first round and the second round make versus the finals and how much of that overall pot was going to go to the, the last couple of rounds versus the first four or five rounds. So that was, that's been more my angle. The second discussion, which is, which is a more toxic discussion is the one that you're touching on, which is how much, of the overall gross revenue should the players receive from these tournaments, because it is a rather low number compared to some other sports leagues. And there are, all, there are lots of different ways to break that down. And I don't really have a view on it right now because I'm not as educated on it, having not sat in the meetings with the players council and with the slams to actually understand what the hard numbers are. But I do know that there are going to be some hard discussions had between the players, especially the ATP who are really agitating uh, this topic with, with the slams to try and get more of a percentage of the gross revenue. I think there's some hard discussions ahead. I hope we don't go into a strike situation. What is the appropriate number? You know, such a tricky question 
to ask. Um, it's really hard to compare tennis to the NBA or the NFL. I think it's, it's, it's a little bit different because we're not team sports. The players actually incur their own expenses. That's not something that happens in other leagues. So that would certainly add, that would give you would think the players an argument to get uh, more, more of the money because they're not covering those expenses. Um, it's, it's complicated. I really don't want to jump on one side or the other. I just want us to find a middle ground where everyone's happy. So we don't have a strike because I just want to keep seeing good tennis. That's fair. Yeah. Every, I mean, it's a very like tricky conversation to have because I feel like everybody has an opinion and a lot of times what it goes down to is when the team sport or team sports are brought up, you know, how much more money are they making like, and how much more fan base do they have compared to tennis? I mean, it's tough. It's a very tough conversation, but I totally get it. <laughs> look, look, the business, the business, business in general is is tough. Their their labor and management is always going to be fraught with peril. There's always going to be friction in those discussions, no matter what the business is, and that's what the tournaments are: management and the players are labor. And you know, the players obviously have the ultimate trump card. If they don't show up, it doesn't matter how nice your facilities are, you're not going to have anything. People, scab players, I don't think will work that well um, in tennis. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that J.P. Morgan Chase would be that pleased that they showed up and all the top players didn't play. But I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope that we everyone's actually doing very well. That's the thing. Like The money yeah. has continued to grow. It's almost tripled at the U.S. Open in a decade. Think about that. It's insane. I mean, that's just yeah. it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Let's hopefully not overcomplicate it and let's just find a way to keep growing together. That would be my my naive um, plea. I feel like I have less I have less stakes in this than both of you. But my my take, and maybe it's naive, is I feel like the the top ranked players almost get paid too much, and the discrepancy is too big between you know making the quarterfinals and winning it, and then the discrepancy between what the top four on the men's side have achieved and how much money they have is light years away from somebody ranked number 10 and they've set themselves apart so far that there's no way to even like even this out and they have all the perks of like flying first class versus flying on their own private jets and that kind of lifestyle is such an advantage and no wonder no one can catch them it's like a different life they're living but I I don't know if that would help anything taking away from the rich is not right maybe but I think there's a huge discrepancy well well, they certainly have advantages because they can afford the best of the best there's no question about that they're also underpaid as far vis-a-vis what value they bring to the tournaments and who's selling the tickets that's both male and female the top players are underpaid but to their great credit this generation of players led by Roger and Rafa and Novak, they've gone in to the majors and they've been the ones saying, Hey, we're okay. We make plenty of money. Let's make sure that a lot of this money is flowing down. And that was part of the discovery uh, in looking at the last decade or so where more of the growth on a per round basis has gone and has been in the first three rounds, the four rounds. Uh, And I think they'll, I think they do plan to do more. I, I talked to the, I've talked to Steve Simon. I've talked to the guys at the ATP with Ross Hutchins, Ross Hutchins and Jorge Escalon, who were leading the view on that. And they're they're really focused on trying to continue to to compress the prize money so it's not quite as as, uh, as big between first round money and the finals money, and do it over time so it's not as obvious. Um, you know, so no one takes uh, a literal pay cut. So just for for cold math, 
that $3.85 million winner's check for the men and the women at the U.S. Open is not going to drop to $2.5 million to get numbers compressed. But more of the growth on the go-forward basis should go to the bottom levels to help them catch up. But, you know, if you looked at, like, the NBA, someone like LeBron James is vastly underpaid for his value to the league compared to the 12th man on the bench who's making 800000 or a $1 million. He's just doing far more for the league, but they also have a system in place where they protect the, the lower-ranked, quote-unquote, players on their benches. And tennis is, is – is, I think tennis is actually doing a good job of that on the go-forward. I, I really was pleased. I, I thought it was more drastic than, than it was because I grew up in an era, and Arena, you're a little bit younger than I am, but back when I started playing on tour, every round doubled. You know, you started out at $2,000, and it was 4000 for the second round, and 8000 for the quarters in the small tournament, then sixteen and thirty-two, and so on. It's not like that anymore. And that's, it's good. It shouldn't be like that. It should be more like 60 to 70% upticks per round. And at, at the challenger level, it really needs to go much, much less. Um, that's a whole, we don't have enough time on this podcast for that. <laughs> we were just saying, we're like, uh, we've gone in too deep. We're just down the rabbit hole. I mean, we, I'm sure we can discuss this on hours on end because there is no, I think, exact answer. There is no exact algorithm that you can really work out. I mean, it's it's a very tough conversation to have. And if you're talking to a tournament director or you're talking to a player, those are very two different points of views. So, and then you have people that are, you know, I've, I've had someone that came up to me and was like, oh, you're a pro tennis player. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, you know, they should really just think about making those ticket prices for U.S. Open, you know, smaller. It's too much money. And I'm just laughing. I'm like, wow, I'm having people complain about how much they're paying, you know, for ticket prices. Like, I'm not even in that conversation and I'm getting that kind of feedback from people. So there's just so many different ways to go about it. Yep. Uh, there's, there's a whole different universe out there when you start digging into that and you start looking at the secondary ticket markets where you actually really see the value of the tickets. And, and then you have something wonderful like fan week at the U S open where it's literally free. If you can take the seven train or, or the LIRR, you can go and you could watch not just great players in the qualities playing playing high high impact matches. You can also see the top players in the world practicing for free. I mean, name me another sport where you can go see, you know, you you name it. At the Olympics, you can't even go watch the players practicing or training. You can't watch players at, at U.S. Open golf tournaments um, uh, for, play for free. The practice right. they charge for that in the days build up. It, it's really unique and awesome. But yeah. yeah, the ticket prices for the final weekend of the U.S. Open are expensive because the demand is there. Right. And then you get you get on the fact, well, people are paying for this for these top players, so they should be getting that top player money. So, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I'll just end on that. On that note. Yeah, Jim, I mean, thank you for, for talking to us about all these different topics and covering so much ground in a somewhat short amount of time. I think this has been a <laughs> really healthy talk. <laughs> no, no, you're great. You're you're honestly so great. So um, really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me on the podcast and continued success with it. I'll, uh, I'll look forward to listening to you on all your topics. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.